1: Hello, I'm Dr Rebecca
0: Ford. Hi, and I'm Dr Matt Hannon. Welcome to Local Zero. Traditionally, big energy companies have dominated a very centralised energy system. But today, we'll be talking about one way that this monopoly is being challenged, and that's community energy.
1: Hundreds of communities have their own local energy systems, from community wind on the island of Barra to solar PV in Brixton. And these community energy systems can bring enormous social, economic and environmental benefits to local areas.
0: Community energy saw a boom in the 2010s, largely at the hands of the lucrative feed-in tariff, but is now at a crossroads due to big policy changes. So what does the future hold for community energy?
2: It's not just about ownership now and generation, it's about services, it's about looking at retrofitting, flexibility, community-owned car clubs powered by community solar. You know, the opportunities, there are just so many of them. Emma
1: Bridge is the Chief Executive of Community Energy England, and she'll be joining us alongside Professor Patrick Devine-Wright, an expert in community energy and public participation from the University of Exeter.
3: Improving green space, biodiversity, reducing fuel poverty. What community energy allows us to do is connect up ideas around emissions reduction activities, renewable energy projects with all the other things that happen in local places.
0: So as always, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of the podcast and ask questions or suggest topics for future episodes.
1: Reviews and suggestions are always, always welcome. And you can also tweet us. We're at energyrev underscore UK. Use the hashtag localzero. But first, as always, let's bring in our faithful wingman, Fraser Stewart. Hey Fraser, how are you?
4: I am absolutely wonderful, guys. How is everybody else doing today?
0: Yeah, no, top, top. I'm sitting in the sunshine yet again. Seems to be, uh, you know, every time we record, the sun comes out. The other six days are, of course, torrential rain.
4: <laughs> Excited for the episode today. Community energy is something that obviously all three of us have, have worked around quite a lot. We have a lot of experience with. And I, I think it's fair to say that we've always been... Uh, not just interested, but actually probably quite excited by.
0: Certainly from my end, I, I'm I'm very close involved with it. Uh work with an organization called South Sea. So I'm trustee and currently chair f- for them, but also day job doing a lot of research on this, like Becky. So you know, it's it's re- going to be really interesting to hear from Patrick and Emma today about their thoughts. You know, the kind of uh, the coal coalface really about how we get this going and why we should even bother.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm absolutely fascinated in community energy as a topic, and I think m- more to the point, community energy in in kind of driving that sense of community. I don't know about about the two of you, but I feel like I've been very nomadic through my life. I think that's part and parcel of being an academic. is, is you you can tend to move around quite a lot. Through some of my travels, I spent quite a lot of time living in New Zealand. And for me, I was always really um, really fascinated by the strong sense of place that a lot of the communities had there. And that went hand in hand, not just with community energy, although that started to become a very interesting and growing topic during my time in, in New Zealand, much in the same way, in the same sort of era as it did in the UK. But actually how it's kind of woven in with stronger community engagement and um, social links and ties to the community. So it's it's something that really, really interests me, I think, in part because I've, I've never really felt connected to that community. So aside from something that I'm really interested from a research perspective, you know, just kind of building my life in Glasgow and starting to feel more and more embedded into a community, thinking about the ways that Community energy can kind of support that uh, social infrastructure that I think I've often felt is really missing in my own life.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think engagement, you know, we hear this word all the time with regards to net zero and the just transition, um, it almost gets overused, but we can't lose sight of its importance. You know, why is it important? Well, if you're going to achieve net zero and ensure that, you know, that transition is just, i.e., no section of society is left behind, then you've got to canvas opinion from everybody and then you've got to involve everybody. You can't leave one, two, three, X number of sections of society behind. It won't work and it will cause problems. So it's, it's the way to go. And community energy is often framed as a very important way of doing that. Now, Fraser, I know you're involved with the community energy organisation. Is that something that you're doing uh, and, and trying to trying to achieve in Glasgow? Yeah,
4: definitely. Engagement is absolutely at the heart of the stuff that we're doing. But I think community energy—what community energy means—it um, it means a lot of different things to different people, depending on on who you ask. I think one of the important things at the heart of the of the Glasgow mission certainly is that just transition element. So it's about finding ways, not just where communities already have financial and social capacity to pull what can be often quite big, arduous, ambitious projects together, but how we can make sure that the benefits of those projects are also flowing into communities who could really stand to benefit from measures to reduce f- fuel poverty, who could stand to benefit from the quite substantial amounts of money that community energy projects can generate. So I think there's a, there's a justice question that underlies this, but certainly the the potential of these projects is massive. I've got a little bit of trivia for you guys, which we-
1: <laughs> Which we always love.
0: Hang on, that's, my, yeah, that's normally my job phrasing <laughs> back up. It is.
4: Sorry, Matthew, you've been sleeping at the wheel this time and I've taken over. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's actually, in fact, this is a good test as to whether or not Becky's actually read my research. So, <laughs> the I've I know just to put you on the spot, Becky. I know you don't read numbers anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> I've been doing work around uh, predominantly around the feed-in tariff, kind of looking at where the benefits of the feed-in tariff went to, and the research that I've been doing suggests that community energy projects have actually been really good at bringing a lot of that benefit to low-income areas. They target areas who who stand to benefit a lot from savings and from Uh, community benefit funds but the question for you guys is under the feed-in tariff in Scotland how much money do you think community energy has generated for community benefit in the last 10 years? It's millions.
1: This shows that I clearly don't read your papers. Um.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Millions and millions. I'm not accepting that.
1: Well I think this is where it gets really interesting Matt because for me the big question is what counts in all of that because Particularly where you're starting to talk beyond just, say, income from a renewable energy scheme and you started to talk about, you know, retrofitting and addressing fuel poverty issues. Well, this is where we see kind of cascades of benefits, isn't it? Because it's not just about then bringing in financial income into the community, but you start to see benefits in terms of health And of impact, you know, impact kind of politicians'
0: answer to Fraser because you're you're now you haven't read his paper. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's all. Well, actually, (laughs) actually,
4: benefit is subjective.
0: (laughs) Are you talking per annum, Fraser? Is it income per annum? No, I'm uh, in the last ten years. How much has community?
4: How much has community energy been worth? in financial benefit as in payments from the
0: feed-in tariff how much do we think right, it's going to be more than 10 million then i thought you were talking per annum okay i'm going to go higher oh then,
1: payments right? from the feed-in tariff okay yeah but i do think that it's you know and i really want you to tell us the answer but i do want us to remember that the impacts are so much more than the, just the financial number absolutely,
4: yeah. absolutely. No, that's, and that's, that's fair, kind yeah. of yeah. why i
1: was pushing back before it wasn't yeah. trying to avoid, avoid <laughs> the yeah. question it was just it is important. i think there's we, if we focus on the numbers we're going to miss a much bigger part of the picture but come on, then tell us the number.
0: We need drum roll now. Go on.
4: The number is, but yeah, Matt, you're not you're not far off. The the answer is approximately forty two million pounds from community projects alone. So that's that's substantial money. And now where, where Becky's coming from there, I completely agree. It's a big part of sort of what drives me is that wider benefit as well. But bear in mind that money has gone into community benefit funds, which then get used in sort of social social projects around the place. So it's a lot of money.
0: So. We're going to hear a bit more from you in a moment, Fraser, I think, about your work with Glasgow Community Energy. Yes. So, a bit of a teaser, what we are going to cover off?
4: Absolutely, yeah. Shameless self-promotion, but we're launching our share offer in a couple of weeks' time. The community energy project we've got in Glasgow, we're putting solar on the roofs of two schools, one in the south side, one in Easterhouse in the east end. Uh, they're expected to generate. They're, they're up and running now. They're already generating. We managed to sneak in under the line of the feeding tariff, so we're we're getting a decent a decent rate on that. Uh, they're expected to generate per school, and it's quite a small solar installation per school. Uh, Five thousand pounds a year for community benefit in the local area. So it's a it's a good project. It's an interesting project, but the. The time that it's taken to get it off the ground, the barriers that we faced, political, social, economic, along the way, it's a massive, massive undertaking. So the conversation that I'll be having with Ellie, who's the Glasgow Community Energy Director unpacks the kind of the practical procedural elements of getting it off the ground so hopefully it's something that people can take away
0: yeah look forward to it
1: i mean this is an absolutely critical part of the discussion isn't it and it's that these groups while so important in terms of the sorts of benefits that they can drive in their in their areas whether that's kind of neighborhoods or 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 cities you know they rely on voluntary input they rely on people doing this above and beyond their day jobs or, you know, after they put the kids to bed or whatever it is. And it's really, it's passion that drives people, but but it's those skills that people are bringing to the table. And... Yeah, absolutely critical component of all of this, isn't it? That kind of entrepreneurial element, but in a voluntary way.
0: It does. And, I, and I, But to be honest, I think the secret to scaling this up is about bringing organizations that sort of professionalize community energy without losing the sense of what community energy is. There is the question of how professional, how corporate do you go until you lose what is community action? And again, you know, that's a, that's a difficult tightrope these communities have to walk.
2: All right, on that note, I think let's bring in our guests. Hi, I'm Emma Bridge. I'm Chief Executive of Community Energy England.
3: Hi, I'm Patrick Devine-Wright. I'm a Professor of Geography at the University of Exeter. And I've also sat on the board of Exeter Community Energy since 2015.
2: At its most simple, community energy is essentially any type of energy project or service that has local leadership is locally owned or accountable, and has wider local benefits. So generally, they are more renewable energy type projects, because most of the sector is motivated by tackling climate change. But also, they can be done in partnership with local businesses and local authorities, and in fact, some of the most effective projects are. And there's loads of different ways to get involved. So that's owning, generating, investing in, giving energy advice, and so on. I would say that building a zero carbon energy system isn't just a technological issue, it's most definitely a social issue as well, and it requires a just transition. So I think the challenges and opportunities are so great that not only do we need whole energy systems, but we also need those to be part of whole place systems. So community energy organisations are already at the forefront of energy innovation, energy system innovation, they're initiating behaviour change helping to accelerate that decentralisation and decarbonisation of the energy system as well as upskilling communities right across the UK. Now the key thing of community energy is that it does all of this by building the trust, consent and active participation that's needed to ensure a rapid and just energy transition. So building upon that, community energy is an incredible incredibly effective way to harness people's passion um, knowledge and the capital to contribute to the UK's energy system but also contributing to those broader social environmental and local economic benefits and you know the other challenges that are happening right now around building community resilience climate action investment linking to housing food projects transport so it's really very much about bringing energy within that whole uh, economic recovery and the green recovery
1: so this is whole of lifestyle, isn't it? I mean, Patrick, are you seeing this reflected in your research, right? So we're hearing a lot of reasons why community energy could be important for lots of different people. Is this is this coming out of your research as well? It
3: definitely is. If you narrowly frame community energy around the installation of this piece of kit or that piece of kit, you're actually missing a trick. And I think that's been one of the challenges for policy over the last decade is seeing community energy in that more holistic framework we are facing an unprecedented environment and climate emergency, a crisis. There is simply no way that we can respond to this effectively without harnessing all of the different actors in society and everybody playing a meaningful role. And what community energy allows us to do is to connect up ideas around uh, emissions reduction activities, renewable energy projects with all the other things that happen in local places, improving green space, biodiversity, reducing fuel poverty, lots of non-energy issues which are still local challenges and ways of enhancing what places are like to live in for communities of people and i think what community energy can do is to ensure that we harness the kind of grassroots energy of people who really ultimately care about local places and are not coming in for a a short-term project that's got a bit of funding and then heading off somewhere else without that kind of
0: enduring local commitment which is what community groups can bring Excellent. So, you know, looking at this, and you've mentioned some of the policy challenges that we face, I think some would argue that actually community energy had some sort of fairly important and adequate policy support, maybe going back to the feed-in tariff introduction in 2010, but it's certainly been no bed of roses and there've been big policy changes along the way, including the scrapping of the feed-in tariff, but there's lots of other stuff here. Investment tax breaks being removed, uh, the cessation of the, the renewable heat incentive. There's lots of things that have happened recently, even in just the last sort of 18, uh, 24 months that have really hurt the sector. Um, so I just wanted to get your take on you know, the, the very best and the worst of policy in recent years and how it's supported or undermined community energy.
2: Probably one of the best that kickstarted all was the community energy strategy. I mean, that didn't last very long. It kind of, it, it was very much um, a coalition strategy. So I think it wasn't really taken ownership after kind of the end of the coalition. So unfortunately, that's where really that kind of high level support for community energy and people generally kind of started to lose in national policy. So I would say one of the key weaknesses at the moment is that you read any of the strategies coming out and people just isn't mentioned, it's all very much focused on kind of that big technological innovation. So I think that's really the biggest overarching challenge. And then, of course, the removal of feed-in tariffs. So for us, it wasn't the fact that it went, it was the way it went. So community energy is really just starting to scale up, just starting to kind of really make an impact. And the surplus from those renewable energy projects were then going into tackling fuel poverty, energy efficiency, we were just getting to the scale and the business models to start to make that happen. And then the rug was just pulled away. So for me, it's that ongoing lack of... Certainty and policy stability which of course impacts the energy sector as a whole but does impact more on community energy. Can
3: I just add to what Emma's very well put there is Just a little nuance that things are different in Scotland and have been for quite a long time and Scotland has shown for quite a long time a much more insightful approach to policy making with a local and community energy emphasis for example that was where we first had a, a policy target to achieve renewables from the community energy sector we had things like a registrar of community benefits quite a lot of innovative policy approaches which subsequently eventually got taken up elsewhere
0: so have have scotland got it right then well every
3: context is different but they certainly have a much more deep appreciation i think of the necessity to bring communities with you in an energy transition rather than having some kind of uh top-down imposition of technological change or an understanding that communities count communities matter so not sure i'd say that scotland is perfect but uh, there there are certainly things that they're doing better than
0: than we are in, in other parts of the country
4: what do you, what do you mean Scotland isn't perfect? I'm <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> But I, I think, you know, if you, you, you're reading the local paper, national Scottish news regularly, you see about land buyouts, uh, community land buyouts. And, and I think, is this maybe what you're speaking to is this broader culture about giving the community, uh, control ownership, uh, able to govern their own, own spaces and that energy is just part of the piece there.
3: Absolutely. And one of the things that I wanted to say today is that you can't really think about local energy or community energy or decentralised energy without thinking about the broader political structures in any given political context. The fact is, in the UK, local authorities for a very long time have not really had much power, much teeth, uh, much of a funding kind of strong base upon which to do action in the energy space in a completely different way to what you see in other European countries, noticeably. Denmark, Austria, other places where, for example, city councils get large scale energy supply district heating projects off the ground, and no one seems to bat an eyelid. And yet it just doesn't seem to happen here. And that's because we've a much more centralised political system with much less enabling powers at local authority level. I was just going to mention today, for example, Woking. Way back in the early 2000s, Woking were trying to do what we would call smart energy now, private wire systems, CHP, district heating, and they just couldn't. They just couldn't because the regulations weren't there, the powers weren't there, the funding wasn't there. So the appetite has been there, but in the system we have, it hasn't really enabled councils to take to grasp the nettle and get on with it alongside community groups, too.
1: So, I want you to unpick a few things that you've just said, Patrick, because you talked about we've t- we started talking about community energy and talking about how that's very kind of grassroots action, a lot of people getting involved through community groups. Now, we're starting to talk about local energy and local authorities. So, is that something that we're seeing a, a changing landscape, local authorities taking a stronger role or a less strong role? And um, how is community energy evolving, I guess, alongside? local energy and what are some of the differences you're seeing or or similarities you're seeing between community
2: energy and local energy we shouldn't be talking about either or so community energy is part of local energy it just adds value so the ideal is everyone working together on this so local authorities should be working with community groups and you know they've both got their own strengths so by bringing that together just completely compounds that that added impact by working together so i think i'm very keen not to say that it's either or or that we're in competition with each other
3: yeah I, I would fully back that up but i would also add that i think community groups take action out of a sense of frustration that no one else is doing what they think is absolutely urgent and necessary there has been a waxing and waning unfortunately of central government support for uh community energy and i think it would be interesting for us all to hear discuss what the recent shift towards the local energy approach uh, means and, and, and whether it means what we're talking about or something else. But I think one of the big difficulties with a situation where councils in particular don't have the capacity to act in this space is that communities do take action but not every community has got the wherewithal to do that. So you get a very, very unequal playing field with uh, community groups sprouting up in places where people happen to have the time and the energy and the capital to do so. But that's a fundamentally problematic way of delivering local energy change and energy transitions because you're going to get innovation in some places and not others. And it'll probably not happen in the places where it happens most, where people are really, really struggling with, with life generally and with poverty in particular.
1: So what needs to happen to change that?
3: In some senses, we need a better blend of top-down and bottom-up. Without a concerted uh, acknowledgement and appreciation by national government that local actors do local energy best, without that, nothing's really going to change. And yet, at the same time, what they cannot do is to create a kind of a one-size-fits-all template and push it on local places and local communities, assuming that it's going to work because it's been dreamt up by some you know, grief behind closed doors, and, and and they're looking for a standardised model to roll up, roll out, there has to be this um, attempt to bring people with us in a participatory manner, and an appreciation of the fact that places differ, challenges differ, needs differ, capacities differ, and, and therefore you need uh, some kind of process which um, enables everybody to reach that end goal, but recognises that the ingredients may subtly differ between places along the way.
2: I'd actually also like to ask Fraser, Matt and Becky, what your thoughts are on this, because you've all been involved in community energy in different ways. So, you know, what's what's your take on this?
0: How long have you got?
1: (laughs) I think community energy has a massive role to play, but not on its own. So it's not just about community energy and, and local government for me, but it's also about engaging all of those critical stakeholders, including incumbent players, including new business entrants, including, you know, national policymakers and so on, um, in driving forward the change. I think we need a coherent vision that we're all working towards, recognizing that there are clear contextual differences. But for me it's all about that collaboration, because if we need to deliver net zero at the you know pace and scale that's going to be in line with our, our national targets and more to the point what the world needs no one stakeholder group's going to do that alone again it's not just about energy so and and i think it's for too long we've used energy kind of synonymously with electricity and now we're starting to talk about energy in kind of its multiple forms but it's about more than just energy it's about lots of different elements of um of I guess sustainability and lifestyle coming together to drive that better future,
0: right so as as we're all doing a kind of confessional then i've i'll I'll have ten seconds as well to get it off my <laughs> chest my worry is that with community energy is we don't have the sense of community that we maybe once did. i take what you said about uh, before Patrick about you know the grass wasn't always greener you know some time ago, and things weren't rosier, but I worry that there isn't the social network to support this, yeah, in the same frame, I think these projects can in- engender that sense of community. So I think some won't get off the ground because there isn't that community, but they can also create community. And so that's where I think government support's so critical to not give a, com- a community a reason you know, not to do something.
4: I think, there's a problem. I think there's a problem even in Scotland with this, where we've got a lot of government support and a lot of, um, of romanticising of the Scottish local community energy sector, which is very, very good and very bustling and very healthy. But it's still, I think it still has a bit of an inequality issue, not just in terms of where the benefits are going and how you pitch those benefits. But we think, I I think we still have an image of community energy as being wind turbines on Barra. We still think of it as rural. We think of it as sort of middle income communities who are benefiting from it. I don't think we've done enough to pitch to a broader coalition of people to get behind it. So I think we have an issue where we've we, on the front of every single community share offer ever in Scotland is a turbine on an island somewhere. And I think we need to do better to, to shake that image and show that actually we do have the tech there, as everyone said, but tech to work in cities. So the work that we do with Glasgow Community Energy specifically targets lower income areas to try and get some of the, the benefit in there for communities who maybe don't have the time to na- navigate the huge bureaucratic processes that can often accompany community energy projects. And actually, that's a really good cue to introduce Glasgow Community Energy, the project that I'm a board member for, and that's installed community solar on the roofs of two schools in Glasgow. We're really proud of how far we've come with the project and its potential to be a blueprint for urban community energy, both in Glasgow and further afield, but I wanted to give you as part of this episode, an honest insight into the problems that the project has faced and how much tenacity was ultimately required to get it off the ground.
5: I'm Ellie Harrison, I'm one of the board members of Glasgow Community Energy and we're a new renewable energy co-op for Glasgow just about to launch. We've now got solar panels on the roofs of two schools in Glasgow. One is in Easter House, it's Ashton Secondary School. Um, one is in Pollock Shields, Glendale Primary School.
4: Perfect, thank you. I should declare at this point as well that I am also a board member at Glasgow Community Energy, which is going to be the topic of the discussion. So just to get that conflict of interest out of the way, nice and early. But Ellie, you've been in this for for longer than me. You effectively founded Glasgow Community Energy. And um, what was the process of that? When did it start? What's the, uh, give us a little bit of background.
5: Yeah. Um, Well, it's going back about six years now, so I think back to 2015.
4: Has it been as much as
5: that? (laughs) Yeah. Six years. (laughs) I guess I'd sort of... All of the work that I'm involved in, because I'm involved in quite a lot of public transport campaigning, um, and all of it is based around the need to reduce carbon urgently, and frustration at government action over that. Like, it's not happening fast enough, so i was aware of kind of other other community energy projects and was inspired by those but at the same time actually i was also interested in i guess like how funding systems work in in general and especially in the arts which is you know where where i trained and 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 worked before there's a lot of fossil fuel companies that are kind of sponsoring art things in the arts that you know they're just doing that to sort of legitimize a business model which is causing climate catastrophe so i was thinking about like what alternatives exist and is there any such things a kind of ethical and autonomous funding stream that you could put into arts projects community projects and that's when i started looking more at community energy and what other community groups have done which is set up cooperatives so that they're owned by the members, run by the members, and that any profit they make, especially through a community benefit society, which is the sort of cooperative that we are, can then be reinvested into the community, and is very, very sort of proudly going to be a project which is by Glasgow for Glasgow, and we want members, we want people to join who who are local and we really want, when we launch our community share offer, it's an opportunity for for people to join the co-op and we really want to get as many um, local members on board as possible because we see that as kind of how we're going to grow. Like it's definitely still small in comparison to other community energy projects, like we've only got two sites but i think we need to start somewhere and um it almost didn't happen so <laughs> what we've got now is something to be really proud of after all the struggle to get to this point
4: yeah oh completely and i think one of one of the the things that stuck with me through the process when we were trying to get it off the ground and trying to get support was the idea that you need to have some kind of demonstrator there needs to be some kind of precedent for it there needs to be some example to point to to say no look honestly this can actually work and i think even though it's a small scale that we're working at just now that's so important not just for the future of glasgow community energy but any other community group that wants to start up something similar in glasgow the precedent is now is now there for you ellie What were the biggest sort of barriers along the way to get in? Bear in mind, we're we're now generating, it's been six years in the making. What were the sort of the big barriers to overcome in that time?
5: Lots of little hurdles and then a few very large hurdles. I mean, (laughs) we got funding to start off with. So that was in 2018. So we'd already be, you know, the idea had already been about for three years by then before we got funding from the Scottish government. That actually opened quite a lot of doors because we then got a development officer who worked for Local Energy Scotland working with us. They they kind of once they'd invested in us with a grant, then they were kind of invested in us, you know, to try and to try and make a success of the project. So and it meant we could bring in expertise, you know, we could bring in um renewable energy experts to to do feasibility studies and stuff like that. So that was the first kind of Little hurdle, um, but then it just really intensified up until us getting the the sites installed, and it was largely down to um, the feed-in tariff, which I'm sure your listeners will know, was a UK <laughs> government scheme which paid a, a set a set rate to to renewable energy generators, guaranteed for twenty years. So it was a really good incentive for individuals and community organisations to to set up renewable energy installations, but that got phased out. The actual deadline for community organisations registering for the feed-in tariff was March 2019, so we at that point, you know, we had to identify quite a few sites where we were planning to install solar, um, get them pre-registered, and once we were pre-registered with Ofgem we had exactly one d- year to get them installed in order to get the feed in tariff so the clock started ticking because it was really the feed in tariff that made the project financially viable and if we didn't get it over the line by that date then we could almost sort of tear up everything <laughs> we'd been working on so <laughs> so that you know that put a huge amount of pressure on us we had one year, so we had until the end of March 2020. And, and as we were coming into March 2020, it was just looking increasingly like we weren't going to get it over the line. And then of course, COVID kicked off and it that was it. It was like a nail in the coffin for the project. But on the <laughs> 30th of March, I think it was, 2020, the UK government department um, bays that, that kind of controlled the feed-in tariff, they announced this susten- extension because of COVID. And that was just, you know, that was a, a lifeline for us, really. We were given a second chance and we just immediately kind of let back into action trying to make it happen again. And it, and it wasn't plain sailing from then on either because of <laughs> the negotiations with the council, which were really crucial because the council owned most of the buildings that we'd pre-registered for feed-in tariff. And obviously we needed to get their permission to put solar panels on. So that was then, you know, we really entered into negotiations with the council, which was probably the biggest hurdle we've had to get over Uh, but we did it and um, we got them to to sign an agreement which they've said is going to set a precedent for other community groups and they they've said in their climate emergency implementation plan that that they hope to you know use that as a as a, the start of a framework for encouraging more community energy across the city.
4: This is it. It comes back to that, doesn't it? There's th- the president is there now. God knows that we had to fight to set it.
5: <laughs> we had a lot more buildings pre-registered for feed-in tariff. We had nine buildings in total between Glasgow Community Energy and the Shields Trust. And they were owned by kind of various organisations. So there was one church... There was two artist studios, Wasps, um, who own artist studios in the East End. There was other council owned buildings, but they were the PFI schools. So the ownership structure was just too complicated. We just didn't have the resources as a volunteer board to be able to pursue such lengthy negotiations with all of those building owners. So we, we lost a lot of those sites, but I I still feel incredibly proud about what we have managed to achieve, given that had we not had that extension to the feed-in tariff, the whole thing would have basically been killed, not just by COVID, but just by running out of time in March l- last year. I think all of those contacts that have been made over the, the last few years, we're really going to hope to sort of Reengage with now that we're, we're going to have the community share offer launching and that they can actually see a tangible project and that they can actually invest in it.
4: Given the time that it's taken to get here, the ups, the downs, the, the barriers, what's next? Where are we going next for Glasgow Community Energy? We've, once the share offer goes out, raise the money, what's next? What's the big picture?
5: Yeah, well, I think my hope would, would be that we would be able to to have local projects all over the city, and that actually part of what we're doing is networking between those areas as well, um, sort of bringing them into the Glasgow Community Energy family. Pollock Shields and An Easter House, you know, they're, they're they're quite far away, but they're now connected through this project and. I hope that that will be a really great way of sort of sharing ideas and building solidarity across the city as well. And I think it is going to be quite exciting when we can start to spend some of the money in the community benefit fund as well, and start to be able to see that money that is is being made through selling the electricity, I'm starting to do some really amazing stuff.
4: Huge thanks to Ellie there. To find out more about Glasgow Community Energy, including when our share offer goes live in the next couple of weeks, you can check out GlasgowEnergy.coop. Back now, though, to the chat with Emma and Patrick. Emma's reflecting on the potential of community energy to really change the future.
2: For start, we're at a huge crossroads. What community energy is doing and able to achieve is changing massively as is kind of the whole energy system so it's not just about ownership now and generation it's about services it's about looking at retrofitting flexibility community owned car clubs powered by community solar i think you know the opportunities there are just so many of them so i think one of the challenges is knowing where to focus and also the additional challenge and and strength of community energy is the breadth of benefits that we have and the way that we do it. So, you know, traditionally, we've always had the strongest relationship with BASE, a Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. But actually, the challenges and the opportunities come right across government. So cabinet office in terms of kind of that engagement, community investment, community resilience, Um, MHCLG, Ministry for Housing, Communities and Local Government, very much around that local authority partnership, but planning blocks. So, you know, the onshore planning blocks affects all of the renewable energy sector, but also really kind of that additional barrier on community-led approaches to that. So engaging the community, well, what does that mean? What is meaningful engagement? And actually, it should be more than engagement. We've seen a report out recently from IPPR saying a third of all onshore renewable energy projects should be offered community ownership we're seeing that voice coming from from a lot more different areas but that also adds a complication so there's no one silver bullet for us to ask for so i think the one key thing is to get people and communities across net zero across all government policy essentially as part of the green recovery but then the the Tax relief, I think, Matt. I think it was you mentioned before. I mean, that. I mean, that's just nonsensical. I don't understand why we, why tax relief was taken away from us. Because- I,
0: I wonder whether one, one uh, fruitful strategy will be to position community energy as an important part of the answer to a just transition. I will maybe defer to Becky for the, for, for sort of deeper line of questioning on this. But there is a question in my mind about whether a just transition can happen without this grassroots action. There are probably arguments for and against because. Community engagement, the grassroots activism that is at the heart of a just transition talks to what these communities need, need and want. But then there's also the the time and scale pressure of a net zero transition. We've got to deliver this in less than th- thirty years. You know, it's this tightrope between giving power to the people but delivering change at a scale and pace required. So uh, how would how do you balance that?
2: I think. <laughs> I mean, it's essential. So I think we just we just have to do it. And I think, I think you can balance it. It goes back to exactly what you're saying about that just transition. Climate change, everything we've seen through Black Lives Matters, um, COVID, it all comes back to that fact of things not being done in a just way. So how do we engage people? Not everyone wants to be engaged with the energy system. And I totally understand that. It's kind of how do we make it, making sure that it's fair for those that can't get or don't want to get engaged with it. So community energy has that. I mean, it's at least 25% more effective, according to research, in engaging people and getting behaviour change and that public acceptance. So it should just be putting that community-led civil society approach at the heart of everything that needs to be done, not just expecting communities to pick up where government don't bother or they can't afford to do it.
4: I'd say there's, there's also probably a massive misconception that justice necessarily slows things down. I don't think that absolutely has to be the case with the right vision, with the right ambition to get things done. But in terms of when we talk about the just transition, these elements that Patrick picked up on earlier, right, of not all communities have the capacity, have the resource, have the the wherewithal to bring about a community energy project, how do you make sure that the benefits are still flowing into those communities in a way that is just and equitable and fair?
3: I think one of the other fault lines maybe we've just opened up is about the scale and pace of change, rightly or wrongly, for a long time, it's been assumed that community energy means diddly tiny little projects that don't really add up to much. Do we really have time for all that stuff? God, I don't think we do really. Uh, Let's just have a great big enormous offshore wind farm and some huge CCS facility and get hydrogen off the ground and that's very exciting. And I think that's a fundamental problem. I think the shared ownership issue began to open up that and question whether community energy has to be small and, and relatively inconsequential. I also think that an energy system transition that works and works fast has space for large scale projects and small scale projects. But I think community energy can cut across those very effectively with vision and with capacity and enabling. And that hasn't really been there.
1: I love that perspective. And I, I want to kind of come back to where we almost started um, our conversation, which is around that community energy is so much more than community energy. So it's not about a community sized, you know, generation asset. It's about changing kind of the very fabric of our lives and places. On our last episode, we were talking about low traffic neighborhoods, a very uh, controversial topic, I believe. But, you know, <laughs> we actually started talking about them and about they're causing these trophic cascades almost or social cascades. So by making this change in the um to how travel is enabled within an area or rather not enabled in this case, it created entire kind of social changes in how people interacted with one another. And I I kind of think back to my uh, grandparents generation and almost when I was growing up and I grew up in a in quite a small a small street where the kids could play outside in in the road and so on. And there was very much that sort of share a bag of sugar with your neighbor perspective. And there was a real strong community element to where we lived. So, you know, do we need to think about community energy? It's, it's not just about those technological assets. It's about the kind of shaping the very fabric of your neighborhood and your community. And the energy is... The sort of catalyst to do that is that, do we need to change this fundamentally how we think about this?
3: I'm just going to nip in briefly, but only to name check Emma here, because she hit the nail on the head when she used the word place right at the beginning of this. And if you take a place-based approach to net zero and energy transitions, then you're not just thinking about kit and you're not just thinking about you know, numerical indicators of capacity installed or emissions saved, you're thinking about something else, which is a, a complex combination of of community ties, local economic flows, infrastructure deployment, um, You know a whole range of environmental, social and economic indicators, which can add up to sustainability. And if you take that place-based approach, I think one of the problems we have with energy policy is that it is Really, too much driven by uh, economic and engineering mindsets, and I'm, I'm going to be controversial here, that tend to have a decontextualized perspective on the world. The kind of the quantifications that you get from uh, engineering perspectives on tech and uh, economic perspectives on paybacks and costs, etc. That they, they lose that sensitivity to place and that that uh, kind of nuance of the distinctiveness of localities. And I think that's something which social science and humanities can add, but they have been uh, less important parts of that policy informing conversation. I think we have to be careful to be nostalgic as well about the way things used to be and how wonderful it was. Not wishing to disagree with you at all about the fun you had in your childhood Becky but uh, um, I think we, we have to look at communities in a clear-sighted way today in places and, and we're living in a world which up until very recently at least has valued mobility maybe more than sticking in places and uh, the people who have been left behind are the people who cannot move and i think the pandemic has usefully challenged some of that accepted wisdom
2: yeah no absolutely and i think yes we do need a radical new approach but i'm always loath to use that word because specifically focusing on community energy, there's something there for everyone. So whatever your political persuasion background, area of interest, like Patrick was saying, whether you're an engineer or a social scientist, there's something there for for everyone. And by all those different perspectives coming together, that's where we will have the most impact. I think sometimes we just try and make things more complicated than they are. There's, There's the solutions there, we just need to crack on with it. We've seen before what happens if you do big projects, whether it's energy or anywhere else, or just forward ahead without thinking about how people will uh, understand that or how it impacts on on their life. We've done all the easy things now, it is the harder things. We are not going to get anywhere, whether it's with economic recovery or uh, green recovery or climate change, if we don't really, really think about how it impacts different people, how different people are brought into it.
0: Do we think that community energy just hasn't quite had the right PR people or right marketing yet? Because are we pinpointing here the true value that it can offer. It may not be, and I stress may, may not be around cost, least cost, but there's a whole, it could be the same cost, but uh, provide a whole range of added benefits. So I I always use the example of a organization called Green Energy Mull on the island of Mull in the Hebrides. And they have a community benefit fund, which uh, is commonplace for these types of uh, schemes. And the funds, I looked at the long list of where this funding went and what what, what, what it was invested in. And one of the things that really stuck in my mind was a new football kit for the under 11's local team. I mean, there was a whole range, I could go through 20 or 30 things, but the the point here is I could use that for a wide range of other things that this money was invested in alongside the other benefits of cohesion, sense of place, autonomy. Um, What do you think we should be pushing at and selling community energy as in terms of what it does? Because I, I wonder whether that's the next step in terms of promoting it, that we need to really pinpoint to your average Joe out there, what it can do for them.
2: So I think it comes down to, we need to look at how we can measure that additional social benefit, that additional social value in a way that is simple to understand and isn't too burdensome in terms of the bureaucracy or uh, about gathering that data. So there are different reports out there, but nothing that really looks at it across across the piece. And, and I think we've got Reports that are about to come out or have just come out show social return on investment from community energy at the least being three to one, but we found ones up to 25 to one, depending on the project. So it's kind of really how we demonstrate the additional value that community energy brings, but again it depends on who's interested in what some people are just interested on the big tech the megawatts so it's how do we really really bring that whole piece of the whole benefits together into something that really grabs people no matter what their background is. Um,
0: I guess it depends who you're selling it to right whether this is the policymakers or the customers.
2: Yes absolutely. So
0: Patrick what's what's your pitch big pitch? I'm really uneasy about
3: the whole language that you're framing this in (laughs) because I think one of the fundamental problems we've had for ages is that cost benefit analysis rules and if we can't show that it's cheaper to do X rather than Y, then it doesn't float. So I think Emma's absolutely right that uh, until we're able to allocate importance to non-monetary costs, uh, other kinds of ways of uh, recognising benefit outside of financial way, then I think it's it's very difficult to capture some of these nuances. I I also think that community groups have been about delivery. Uh, Emma's been talking about the need for action, getting on with it, not just theorising. That's what community groups have been doing for a long time. And then we say, well, hold on a second, haven't you got detailed numerical indicators of the quantified impacts of your work over years? And of course they don't because they want to get on with it. So I think it's been a bit unfair. It is a nut that can be cracked, but I, I have to come back as an academic, maybe to the conceptual thing, which is that if we see tackling net zero as a society, as not just a technical fix, it should be about societal transformation in local places and it's about how do we make places, better places to live, but also places that are effective in responding to the environment and climate emergency. And that has to be about more than just what's the cheapest way to do renewables deployment or, or net zero, et cetera. We have to take those other things into account. And if we can do that, then I think we're onto a winner.
1: So before we finish our interview, I'd like to turn turn us to something very kind of practically focused because this podcast is all about... It's a solutions-based look, very practical. So I'd like both of your thoughts. For, for someone listening to the pod that's interested in this idea and interested in community energy, but perhaps isn't engaged in it already, what can they do to get engaged? What can they do to start to make a difference?
2: I'd say first off, look at our website, or if you're in Scotland, Community Energy Scotland, or Wales, Community Energy Wales, there's, you know, we've got a raft of information on there to explain. Have a look at our vision for 2030 and our State of the Sector Report in particular. It's as simple as there's lots of share offers at the moment, so you can invest from as little as £50 pounds or as well as getting involved through volunteering your skills. There's so many different ways, but yeah, just start, have a look at the website first and get in touch if you are interested. Yeah.
3: And uh, complementing what Emma's just said, I'd say check out your local, your local notice boards and neighbourhoods, work with the community groups that are already there, find out what their needs are, think about community facilities, shared facilities like village halls, places where people can gather and uh, uh, come together. Often you've got rickety buildings which need to be spruced up. Can you do something around PV around that or better quality insulation? There's, There's lots of things in local neighborhoods and communities where people have reasons to come together and you can connect that up with the energy transition agenda we're talking about in net zero emissions. You don't necessarily need to start there. And as Matt said, you don't need to finish there. There's the under 11 football team strip need as well.
1: Brilliant. So thank you, Patrick, and thank you, Emma. That was, that was absolutely fantastic. Uh, lots of great discussion and practical tips. I'm hoping that you can both stay on and join us for Future or Fiction, Fraser's absolute wonderful creation that he loves to share with us each episode. So Fraser, over to you.
4: Yeah, so for the uninitiated, Future or Fiction is a game that we play with all our guests, where I pitch a new innovation to the panel, and they have to decide whether they think it's brand new and it's actually happening, in which case it's the future, or if they think I have just pulled it out of my backside. So today's innovation is a space for community, a space for community. So reflecting the the wonderful panelists we've got on today, this is about community ownership. As billionaires and tech agencies around the world ramp up their space exploration efforts and set about effectively colonising our nearest planetary neighbours, community groups in the US have banded together to launch a legal claim to ensure that any use of natural resources in places like Mars can lead to public goods rather than becoming exclusively a new means of private profit. Do we think this is actually happening or do we think it's fiction? come to Emma first.
2: <laughs> Every time you do this I always think oh no it's totally true so but I'm not sure with this one um, and <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I hope someone's thinking about that. I mean I think there's probably more urgent things people need to be thinking about but yeah no I'm, I'm going to go with future.
3: I'm, I'm pretty sure it's happening too and if it isn't I think it should be. <laughs> yeah the idea that um, you know we've run out of exploitation of minerals and ways to get rich quick on planet A, and we could just move off to find asteroids and meteors and, and planets elsewhere that we can exploit. Yeah, I'm qu- quite uncomfortable with that.
0: And you're saying, Fraser, that actually now people are just pointing at you know a dot in the far distance and saying that the resources, minerals from that, as and when we can harvest them, will be equitably distributed this this
4: is the theory yeah this is the the broad idea so you have like you have all these mad websites where for birthdays and christmas and stuff you can buy like oh i bought you a square mile on mars or stuff like that yeah this is much more yeah, to that's do- very
0: kind of you fraser thank you
4: i know you're, you're very very welcome um and we'll 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 turn it into a community garden <laughs> yes, <yeah>. no, um, <laughs> some raised beds <laughs> a pond the, the example just now is that people like elon musk just to name check are going off to Mars and they're talking about populating it, they're talking about harvesting whatever they can from it. The idea here is that to counteract that, community groups are banding together to bring the fruits of that into some kind of community public ownership. But
1: see, now you said community groups in the States are banding together. See, that's where you've thrown me off. I feel like if you told me kind of community groups in, like, I don't know, Sweden was doing that. I might be more bought into this. So anywhere in particular, can you narrow it down more than just America?
4: Not especially, no. America (laughs) in the US. (laughs) Uh, that's uh, uh, That's where the main conversation is happening.
0: I think this is definitely happening. I am kind of got this image of kind of sandal wearing folk on the Star Trek Enterprise, <laughs> you know, and this I'm trying to kind of bring the two worlds together of, you know, cutting edge space travel and you know community cooperative thinking. But um yeah, I, I'm I think it's real. I'm
1: going to challenge your I'm gonna challenge your thought of community and cooperatives having to be sandal wearing groups. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a pair. I, yeah. Listen, I'm
0: yeah. a trustee and I wear a pair of uh, wear a pair of lovely sandals when the weather's right. Community
4: energy does have an image problem
0: <laughs> well only amongst academics <laughs> hold on a second <laughs> yeah I could have could have swapped that out for academic easily Patrick quite right
1: <laughs> oh dear um so I would love for this to be true but I maybe I'm not as positive today as I was a couple of weeks ago but I feel like this is probably fiction despite the fact that I wish it was happening
4: okay so that that's final answer yeah reluctantly or disappointedly fiction
1: disappointedly fiction
4: Patrick, can I pin you down for an answer? Future. Future. Emma? Future. And Matthew?
0: Yeah, future. Future.
4: The answer is...
0: Fiction. Oh. I think. <laughs> I haven't got one right in 2021 yet. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> this is something that I invented with our guests in mind. There are legal challenges into space exploration, but none, as we understand it, are a result of communities banding together to try and seize Mars into public or community ownership. So there's grounds for it, but it is fiction.
1: This is the first one where I'm actually sad to be correct. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, maybe we've started something now. Exactly. Maybe this is the seed. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
4: This is it. Earlier in the season, we had space based solar panels. Yeah. And then before you knew it, they're everywhere.
0: Yeah. In space mostly. I think you've been watching a bit too much Babylon 5, Fraser. Um, you say
4: this a lot I don't watch any of this kind of stuff that's for the that's for the nerds man
0: (laughs) we can be careful we're offending it now oh dear
2: (laughs) just trying to offend everyone with this episode I think think we'll just just
0: end transmission now before we uh, lose this
4: yeah that's for the ponytails and the sandal wearers that's not me
1: (laughs) think all that's left to say is uh is to thank emma and thank patrick again for such wonderful contributions uh, to today's show we've really enjoyed having you on board particularly for future or fiction please do follow us on social media at EnergyRev_UK. underscore uk use our hashtag local zero and ask us any questions, drop us a comment, um, give us some feedback, and we'll try and get to that and address it all in future episodes. But for now, thanks for listening and bye.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Bye, bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye,
4: bye, 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 bye.
0: Produced by the spoken media.